0: Hey, good morning, everyone. How are you today? Good. It's nice to see most of your partial faces today. Um, That was a joke, by the way if you understand. now. Anyway, in all seriousness, just as a reminder, first off, if you're here, first off, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, thanks for coming this morning and uh, wearing face coverings on your way in for wearing face coverings during the worship time. Um, if uh, if you're not comfortable wearing them during the time of the message, as we announced last week and on our video this week on social media, you can either take it down or you can remove it during the time of the message, just so that you have a little bit of breathing time, a little bit more comfortable uh, opportunity just to feel a little bit more back to normal. Um, but thank you, so so much for honoring that. I just want to say, first off, um, I said it during our huddle this morning, and I want to say it again. Uh, no one really wants to do this. I mean, I don't know anyone that wants to do it anyway. If I, if they're there, I'm not sure I know who they are. Um, but what I want to say, in addition to that, is that um, by doing it, what we've done is we've opened the door to people at Bridge, the Call Bridge Home to gather again as a church. I just want you to hear that. And I want you to know during this week, yes, we've had many conversations with different people about what they agree with and what they don't agree with. And that probably comes as no surprise to you because the culture around us right now, our world is very quick to tell people what they agree with and what they disagree with, right? It doesn't take long for us to understand that everyone has an opinion, but I will tell you some of the most significant conversations I've had this week have been the ones where people that have not been part of bridge here on site for many months have reached out to me and said, thank you for not forgetting about us. Thank you for being willing to inconvenience yourself, even if it means doing something that you're uncomfortable with for a few moments so that we can come and be part of our church family again. So I just want to say to you, thank you. And I just want to encourage you with something. God does not overlook decisions where the church looks at the benefit of the church. Does that make sense? He doesn't overlook the things that we do for the sake of the bigger church. And I just want to say thank you, whether we agree or whether we don't, I will tell you, I had my little, um, my little face shield on this morning and two things actually were beneficial of wearing the shield over a mask. One, I didn't feel like I needed a breath mint. Okay. Because the mask kind of reminds me that I really need to invest in better mouthwash. Um, so, so the, the shield was good for that. But you know, the second is like, and I don't even know why that's the case, but I was able to hear myself worship the Lord a little bit better than I do usually when I don't have anything on can I tell you, that song, man, in Christ alone, that just wrecked me. I mean, that song was beautiful. Do you guys know, I mean, the world that we live in right now, everyone has an opinion about what should be done and what shouldn't be done. Everyone has a strategy for the sake of our country and for the sake of our families and the sake of our community. And everyone seems to know best. And, you know, if we're being honest, and I think we would all agree, not everyone has our best interests at heart with some of the things people are requiring other people to do. Right. Does it make sense? But I think of that scripture. I think of that song. No power. Um, what's, what's, the, what's the verse? I just had it. And like, No power in hell. No scheme of man. Can ever pluck me from his hand Think about that Till he returns Or calls me home Here in the power of Christ I stand We don't stand this morning because of ourselves We don't stand this morning Because of our abilities We don't stand this morning because of our identity As an American We don't stand because of our wealth Or our financial experiences or background We stand as a church Because of who Jesus is We stand in the confidence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And in the midst of all this uncertainty that we deal with, and I'm so tired of the uncertainty. How many of you would give an amen for the uncertainty and the chaos? Aren't you crazy sick of it? I'm sick of it. But can I tell you, no power in hell, no scheme of man is ever going to pluck us from his hand. We walk in the confidence that comes from Jesus that comes from the Holy Spirit, and that's what the church is going to do. The church has never been threatened by the work of the enemy. Never. Because God knows. God's in control, and God is all-powerful. Amen? If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Acts this morning? Man, I'm going to do what I can to get through this this morning. Um, Some messages hit you harder than others, and uh, I guess God has a way of challenging you as you walk through messages, scripture. Someone told me years ago that the best message you'll ever preach is the one lived through the life of the preacher. And if we are not experiencing stuff that we are teaching, then perhaps we need to go back and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us before we speak it, or at least while we are speaking it. Um, This one has been very difficult for me over this past week. Um, and you'll understand a little bit more as I talk through it. Um, last week we talked about a a church. uh, I'm sorry. We talked about seeing the church with 2020 vision. Uh, today is seeing the church with 2020 vision part two very creative title. Thank you very much. I fretted over this last yesterday. I'm like, I don't know what to call this. And my wife was, you know, her wisdom said, don't worry about the title. And God just spoke to me and said, part two, and that's it. So that's what we did. So seeing the church with 2020 vision part two, and it makes sense. And let me explain to you why, if you were listening last week, or you were here last week, we talked about what does it look like for us to view the church with perfect vision, 2020 vision, You go to the eye doctor, you see it on the eye chart. 2020 vision says you have perfect vision. You can see clearly and you don't need glasses or contact lenses. And how people view the church today has a lot to do with how they are, what their backgrounds are. We talked last week about briefly that people maybe that are atheists or unbelievers might see the church as an organization, simply a building or an institution that's been created by men to manipulate other people, impressionable people. Someone said years ago that the church is an opioid for the masses, that it's just a way to medicate people that are impressionable by entertaining something that's not genuine. For those that are skeptics and cynics, some people define the image of the church as a place where people don't live what they claim to believe. People call churches places where there's hypocrisy and there are masks, and people claim one thing as priority, but they actually choose to live another way. Some people see a church as a religious place where they come and they serve their time a few times a year. Maybe they're here over the holidays for Christmas or Easter or, or a couple of select holidays. You may see them during a baby dedication. And then other than that, their lives are their lives. So it's maybe just a piece of their life that they have as part of their tradition and their family heritage. But the real picture of the church this morning, the real picture, and I wrote this down this morning, or I wrote this down this week as something that I think is is, a, is an okay definition of the real picture of the church, is the church is supposed to be an authentic gathering, Okay, an authentic gathering of imperfect people who have a relationship with God, who want to grow in their love for Him and their ability to love others. The church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be an, in, an authentic gathering of imperfect people. You notice I put the imperfect part in there? Because churches that have perfect people in, in it have churches with deceived people in it. No one is, is perfect. In this world, God is perfect, but the church, the picture of the church is a gathering of believers, imperfect people that have a genuine relationship with God. We come together, we have a relationship with God through our faith in Jesus Christ that we want to grow in our ability to love him and our ability to love others. That's what I believe the church is In our process of doing that. We become a witness to the world around us. What we saw last week was that when the church was birthed in the book of Acts, there were four main things that they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which was the word of God, to fellowship, which was an intimate relationship with others, not just an anecdotal acquaintance relationship, but they really shared life together, that they broke bread together, meaning that the needs of each individual were met based on what others had, and they devoted themselves to prayer. And the result of their devotion to these four things was that they lived the gospel. The early church lived the gospel in what they said and what they did. And as a result, the church began to grow. You see in the book of Acts, thousands of people became followers of Jesus Christ. They accepted him as their Lord and Savior. He was their Messiah, and the church was on the move, right out of the gate. Some of the most powerful examples of the church you see in the first few chapters of the book of Acts. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to look beginning in verse 32, and we're going to continue this conversation about what the view of the church is. How do we see the church with 2020 vision? And the, the writer of Acts, Luke, does a really great job detailing a little bit more about what that devotion produced. In Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, we see what I believe is one of the most beautiful pictures of the church in all of the Bible. And it begins in verse 32 Luke writes All the believers Were one in heart and mind No one claimed that any of their possessions Was their own But they shared everything they had With great power The apostles continued to testify To the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And God's grace was so Powerfully at work In them all That there were no needy persons among them For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field. He owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I really think this is one of the most beautiful pictures of the new Testament church that we can see as they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching to fellowship, to sharing and meeting each other's needs and to prayer with a spirit of unity. The result of that devotion was that there were no needy persons among them. Think about that. No needy persons among them. This is what, I think this is what's so incredible about this. There were no needy persons among them, And it wasn't a result of the Roman government's influence. There was no needy person among them. And it wasn't a result of a bill or a law that was passed that people were obligated to respond to. There was no need among those that called themselves followers of Christ. Why? Because followers of Christ cared for followers of Christ. You see where I'm going with this? The church was transformed through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The preaching of the word empowered others to hear the truth. The spirit transformed them. They devoted themselves to the word, to being unified, to meeting each other's needs and prayer. And as a result of that, everyone worked together. Everyone lived in community. Now, that's not uh, communal living, okay? It doesn't mean that we're supposed to put fences around our property and everyone has to put small tents up. The mindset was that they walked in a spirit of unity. And as a result of that unity, everyone had what they needed. There were no haves and have-nots. And there are not supposed to be haves and have-nots in the kingdom of God. Now, many times we can interpret that as simply physical things, food, shelter, and that's important, right? There are some foundational things we need, but if you extrapolate that and you look a little bit broader, you would see that people have resources and abilities, and we'll see that if you read through the New Testament, you see it's not just physical means that people cared for others with. It was mentoring. It was counsel. It was encouragement. Look at Joseph. We know him as Barnabas. Barnabas was just a nickname for him. Did you know that? Barnabas wasn't his real name. They called him Barnabas because he was a son of encouragement. The dude just overflowed and leaked encouragement. It was his nickname. You know, when I was a kid, my name's Paul, but when I was a kid, I was Paulie to everybody, you know, who knew me from North, North Jersey and Long Island. I was Paulie. They didn't call me Paul. My cousins call me Paulie. It's true. I'm not making it up. I love telling that story when Leslie and I got engaged and we went back to my parents' house in North Jersey, and some of my cousins were there visiting, and I hadn't seen them in probably six, seven years. Well, at that point, you know, I went from being like a 14-year-old to like a 21-year-old, and, and it was funny because, you know, you grow up during that time. I was taller, you know, I, I had, I don't know, I was stronger, I was bigger, I wasn't poorly anymore. And one of my cousins, I remember, saw me in my parents' house and gave me a hug. And it says, so nice to see you. And they're like, Paulie's here, Paulie's here. And I remember someone leaned over to one of my cousins and said, he's not Paulie anymore. He's Paul. <laughs> and my other cousin whispered back, he'll always be Paulie to me. <laughs> but that was my nickname. Joseph's nickname was Barnabas. You're the encourager. That's his nickname. So encouragement was a way that needs were met. We see a level of care, generosity, and can I just be totally out, out, outright honest, selflessness that had never been seen before. And it wasn't because there were four or five generations of family that all lived together, that were all part of the same bloodline, or people that grew up together and were just lifelong friends. No, my friends, these were people that were not unified because of their blood. They were unified because of the blood of Christ. They became family, not because of some DNA to say that they were, part of the same, they were part of the same biological family. They became sons and daughters. They become children of the Most High God. And they recognized as a family, they needed to stick together. They needed to work together. And the spirit of generosity and kindness filled the hearts of believers. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what the first century church looked like? Isn't that beautiful? I mean, I told you earlier, like I'm convicted as I'm going through this, this teaching this week and I'm reading and I'm just saying, Lord, how far have we drifted? How far have we drifted? How far have I drifted? How far has our country drifted? Where we spend more time as individuals talking about political policies that people should be changing policies in this country for the sake of the better of the good which is not a bad thing to have those conversations but what i'm I'm saying is have we relegated our responsibility to care for others to the government or have we taken up that responsibility and are we making the change as opposed to allowing someone else to make the change for us You know, sometimes I've heard people read scripture passages like this and they say, you know, um, people use these passages to talk about socialism. They talk about socialism and they say things like, you know, then the political party that's running on a socialist platform, I'm going to vote for them because that's more in line with scripture. Can I tell you, socialism, communism, whatever those things, the isms that you're talking about, that is not what we see here. Okay? Socialism and communism say... What you have is mine. God tells the church when we walk in a spirit of unity, our attitude should be what I have is yours. It's a big difference. You see the difference? Socialism and communism say, let us take from you because it doesn't belong to you and we will give to others and it absolves us of responsibility and places the responsibility to care for others on others. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, the church was transformed. And what they recognized, that it wasn't what you have belongs to me. It's what I have belongs to you. I'm willing to share. I'm willing to give. I'm willing to be kind and generous and selfless. Why? So that no one was in need. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the first century church? So what's changed? Well, it does change. In Acts chapter 5, it changes. And we're going to read the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 5. Because as amazing as that story is, it turns a corner and it looks really different in Acts chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, check this out. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Okay, and you see what happens. Let's back up just a little bit. Joseph was the Levite. Barnabas He sold a piece of property and he gave all the proceeds to the church. The church distributed that to the people that were in need. So he did it. There was another couple named Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 1, they were together and they sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied. You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. Verse 5 When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened Then some young men came forward Wrapped up his body And carried him out And buried him Now just You see what's going on here What Barnabas did Ananias and Sapphira chose to do They sold their property They took the proceeds They brought it to the church But what they got for the property Is not what they gave to the church Hold that thought About three hours later His wife came in Not knowing what had happened Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. See where this is going? Peter said to her in verse 9, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, I'll be honest. When I read scripture passages like this, and I know I'm not alone in this, these are the kinds of passages, these are the kinds of stories and the narratives where people can look at Christianity and say, are you kidding me? They lied about not giving all of the property or all the proceeds of the property to the disciples or to the main apostles and God killed them for lying? What kind of God would do that? Don't you think that seems a little bit harsh, right? I mean, how many times have we told lies? How many times have I lied? I've lied more times than I can count. I'm not lying to you now, but I probably lied yesterday about something. I don't know, especially if a telemarketer called me. There's special grace for that, I guess. (laughs) Why would God kill someone for lying? Doesn't that seem harsh? Doesn't that seem difficult for you to look at and say, this God that is full. And what do you hear about the word of God and the character of God? He's a God of grace. He's a God of love. He's a God of kindness, right? He is a God of truth. He's a God of judgment, but he kills Ananias and Sapphira, who, by the way, are not unbelievers. They're believers. They're followers of the way of Jesus. They sold their property and they gave a large portion of it to the, to the, to the apostles for the sake of the broader community. But they held back a portion for their self. Was it really necessary for God to kill them? Let me just first say something before we take any steps and go any further. And Peter says about it, says this about it. They were not obligated to sell their property. They weren't required to sell their property. Peter even said it. He said, this property was yours. Basically, he said, didn't the land belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Why would you do such a thing? Peter's honing in on the fact, not that they sold the property, but they were deceived and they deceived others. And this is where sin, for the first time in the story, this is where sin, for the first time in the story, enters the Christian church. Because what God birthed was pure. What God birthed was beautiful. What God birthed brought unity. And this is the very first time that we see in the recorded acts of the church where sin enters into the church. And God's response to sin is, you need to get out of here no sin, not even a hint. There should not be any impurity. Why? Because a pure church produces unity and unity produces power. A pure church produces unity. Hear me on what I'm saying here. God established the church so that we would be unified as one body. And that unified body produces power, meaning we can go and fulfill the Great Commission and be God's representatives to the world around us. But it all begins with purity. We cannot be powerfully effective if we're not unified as a body of Christ. It can't happen. When we're divided, when we're separate, when we're not of like mind, when we're thinking different things at different times and going our own way, we cannot be effective for the kingdom of God. Even if our motives in the back of our mind are pure, if we cannot walk in relationship with those around us that call themselves brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean the whole world has to be unified in one church. It means for the church body that God has called together, if we cannot walk with a spirit of unity, there will never be any power because disunity is what our world understands. Divisiveness is what our world understands. There needs to be unity, and in the presence of unity, There is power, and we cannot have power and unity unless we have purity in the church. Because when we have purity in the church, we get closer to Jesus. And when we get closer to Jesus, we get closer to each other. See how that works? You can try to maintain unity with people around you, but let's just be honest. It's hard sometimes to be unified with some of the people around you. That we rub arms with or shoulders with, even in the church, because the church is a place where there is uniqueness. Everyone's different, personalities are different, right? People think differently, people act differently, people live differently. People wash their bodies differently. People do whatever you want to say differently. It can be difficult sometimes for us to walk in a spirit of unity. And we can try as hard as we want. But biblically, the answer to preserving unity and to producing unity is not for us to get closer to each other. It's for us to get closer to the cross. As I get closer to the cross, I will get closer to my brother and sisters in Christ. You know why? Because for me to get closer to the cross, I need to leave my preferences on the journey. For me to get closer to the cross, I need to leave my pride on the road. For me to get closer to the cross, I need to leave my preferences on the road and keep it all subject to the cross. So when I'm before Jesus in the cross, I say, I am a follower of you before I'm anything else. I need to love you before anything else. When we say things like, He is Lord, that song we sang this morning, He is Lord, that doesn't just mean He's in control of the world. He is Lord is supposed to be a declaration of what He is into our hearts. He is in control of our hearts. He has full permission to take me where I need to go, when I need to go, how I need to go. I took a ride the other day into a uh, city. As I've been doing some car shopping for one of my kids And a friend and I went into a, into a city in a town Which doesn't have a good reputation of being a safe town um, But it looked like it could have been a good deal So we were going to go And um, doors were locked and everything was fine And I'll tell you what, th- one thing We went through this town And I remember at one point I said to my friend I said God would have to visit me in person In the middle of the night sit down and have a piece of pizza with me to tell me to come and live in this place. That's what I said in the car. True story. That's what I said. God would have to visit me in the person and call me to do that for me to do that. And can I tell you, while I was saying those words, I felt the Spirit convict me and say, so who who is your life about? Is it about you? Or is it about me? Am I really Lord of your life? Now, in that moment, I wasn't saying God was saying You know, thus saith the Lord, selleth your home and go move to this place. I wasn't hearing anything like that. I heard a conviction, though, in my heart to say, you're holding on to something that you don't have the right to hold on to, Paul. You can have a preference to not do that. But when God speaks to us, are our hands open? Are our wallets open? Is my calendar open? All of those things have to be subject to God for us to be able to walk closer to him. It's just like in a marriage. Usually when people come over the years for marital counseling, they don't come to the table because the counseling situation is, hey, can you just help me understand how to die to me better? I don't think anyone's ever come to me saying, can you help me learn how to die to myself better for my spouse? Some of you are probably thinking you got that right. Most people don't talk like that. Most people, when they talk about marriage issues or marriage struggles, usually what they come to the table with is my needs are not being met. And I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm not saying that that isn't legitimate because we each have a responsibility to meet each other's needs. And I know that I have failed at that at many times across my own marriage to not be aware of things and should prioritize things differently. My point in saying this is that people don't usually come to the table to find ways to die to themselves. But what I tell them is the same thing that I've been challenged with, is that if I want my marital relationship to be more unified, I don't try to get closer to my spouse, I need to get closer to the cross. Because if I'm on this side of the stage and she's on that side of the stage... I can try to get to her, but there's going to be boundaries and barriers on the way. But if we both walk towards the cross, it will get closer and closer to each other. The unity comes because Jesus is the one that's doing it, not us. You with me? This is so important. It doesn't matter if it's a a marriage situation, if it's a relationship with your children, if it's with a family member or a friend. Unity comes by purity. Where there's purity, there's unity. And where there's unity, there's power. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we see that illustrated. Before all of the things happened, before all of the things Luke wrote about actually happened, he began in verse 32 saying, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Think about that. All of the believers were one in heart and one in mind. What he's saying is they were one in heart. Okay, and one in heart is referring to the thoughts and the knowledge of each individual. It's more of the physical part of the individual, their thoughts and their, and their physical attributes. They were one in heart, physically, but they were one in mind as well, spiritually. So it wasn't just we love Jesus, but we're doing our own stuff. It means no, physically what we're doing and our motivation is the same, but we're also unified because we know that we're brothers and sisters. We know that we're part of the family of God. So all of their person was unified together. And because they were unified, God used them to do supernatural things. It was their unity that produced the power to live radically different. And that's what we see all across Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike. Where there is unity, there is God's blessing. Where there is unity, there is power. Where there is unity, there is chaos in the demonic realm. Think about that. Where there is unity, there is power. Where there's unity, there's blessing. And where there's unity, there is chaos in the demonic realm. Satan experiences Chaos When the church gathers in unity And not just physically In our minds When we are like-minded In the way that we live In the way we talk In the way that we honor God And we walk When we get that right If he has boots He shakes in them Satan is deathly afraid Of unity in the body of Christ In Psalm 133 verse 1 The psalmist says, How good and pleasant is it for brothers and sisters to walk in unity? How good and pleasant is it for brothers and sisters to walk in unity? And then he says, It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. Now, that's not an image that I find encouraging and comforting. I don't want anyone dumping oil all over me. But in that context, okay, in that context... You would have a guest come to your home or someone that you knew in that context of Israel during that time, and you would pour oil on their head or their beard. It was a dry, dirty place, and it was a comfort to them. It brought peace to them. It brought honor to the individual, and oils were also used for healing purposes. It brought all of those things, and what the the psalmist is saying is when brothers and sisters walk in unity, they will experience peace They will experience hope. They will experience comfort. They will experience healing. If we want to experience those things as the church, we need to walk in unity. And if we want to walk in unity, we need to walk in purity. If you look in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, in Ephesians chapter four, he he talks about the idea of being a prisoner for the Lord. And he says, you know, I urge you to live a life that's worthy of the calling that you've received. He says in the beginning of chapter four, he says, I want you to be completely humble. I want you to be patient and all of those things uh, as you bear in love with one another. And then in verse three, he says this make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then look what he says in verse four there is one body, there is one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What is he saying? There is one. And if you go and you look at the Greek word that he uses there, you know what it means? It means what? One. It means one. Is't that cool? Like he actually said it in English, it translated, and one means one. It doesn't mean two. It doesn't mean three. It doesn't mean 1.00596. It means one. It means there's one faith, he's saying. And he's reminding the church to say, though you were separate, though you were different, though you were set apart and doing your own thing, God called you to be his people. God called you to walk with a spirit of unity. And by walking in a spirit of unity, you get there through the bond of peace. And as we walk in peace, we walk in unity. Why? Because God is all about unity. Even the Trinity There's one God in three persons. The Father loves the Son, and the Son submits to the Father. And the Spirit is our counselor, and he's the one that created all things in Genesis. There is a diversity in the Godhead, but there is a unity in the Godhead. And it's a beautiful story, and it's a beautiful image that we see. Unity is the greatest power Christians have over spiritual darkness. Some people can say it's prayer. Some people could say it's reading the Word. I don't disagree that those things are super powerful, but can I tell you, when we pray the way God wants us to pray, when we walk the way God wants us to walk through prayer, it transforms us and unifies us. It changes our identity. And that's the whole point why the enemy doesn't like it. Because when unity transforms us, we have a new identity. We don't look at others and say, well, they're just another person. We look at others and say, they are a brother and the sister in the Lord. They're a follower of Christ. And what they experience and what they wrestle with is something that I have to wrestle with. I need to experience. And when one part of the body hurts, the entire body hurts. People should feel that. And I, I think in preparation for this week, as I was thinking about one of the dangers that we have in our country... In our culture, is that we have become so individualistic. We've become so focused on ourselves that we have lost the intimacy and the beauty of what it really means to be a body of Christ, what it really means to be a unified body. We're so focused on our preference, we're so focused on how we appear. And that might apply to you. It may not apply to you in that moment. But I can tell you, when we look at the bigger picture, it applies to our churches today in many ways. That we're more willing to say, well, my identity is not so much in what it means to be a body, but I have to think of myself and then I'll think of others. And scripture teaches us the exact opposite. Die to yourself. Love God and love others. Walk in a spirit of unity. Because when we don't have unity, there's destruction. And that's the consequence where there is no no unity. When we have unity, there's the blessing of God. When we lack unity, there's destruction and division. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. How many times have you heard someone say a kingdom divided amongst itself or a house divided amongst itself cannot stand? Abraham Lincoln even quoted that. People didn't know he was quoting it from the Bible, but he was quoting it. And Jesus is saying the exact same thing here, that if we want to walk in a spirit of unity, if we want to walk in blessing, we need to be unified. We cannot be divided. I think about this every election season when I look at what's happening across our country and how often when you look at the polling that happens towards the elections, what do you see? 51%, 49%, 53%, 47%. 51%, 49%, 53%, 47%. You don't ever see 90% and 10% or 80% and 20%. You don't, you don't see that. We're a divided nation with differing views, different perspectives, differing uh, viewpoints about things. And if we continue down a pathway of division, not difference of opinion, but division, our country can't stand the way that it is. And the danger that the church has to avoid is to recognize that sometimes if we're not careful, we can allow impure things into the body where our preferences become the priority and then we experience the same level of division as the world around us. I'm going to close in a few moments, but I just want to give you a couple of things to consider and to ask you. Our worship team is going to come and we're going to close in a song in just a few moments, but I want to remind you that Jesus is the one that builds the church. I want to remind you this morning that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers believers to live as witnesses of Christ, but all of that requires unity to be effective. Yes, we can say Jesus builds the church and we can invite the Holy Spirit and we can pray for a baptism and a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit and we need all of those things, but if we don't, Walk in a spirit of unity as believers. None of those things will be effective. We need God. We need the spirit. But we need to walk in a spirit of unity. So how do we cultivate unity? Two things I want to show you briefly. How can I cultivate unity? Number one, and we see these both in Acts chapter 5. But the first one is don't give Satan a foothold. Don't give Satan a foothold. In verse 3, of Acts 5, Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept yourself some of the money you received for the land? Remember, holding back a part of the money was not the sin because he wasn't obligated to give all of it. It was the deception. It was the appearance to look like he was like someone else, but he really was not being genuine. The disingenuineness of what he did really was the determining factor that resulted in the sin. I guess the word we would use is hypocrisy. He claimed one thing when he actually did something else, right? He was being a hypocrite. And hypocrisy in the church is a sin. But what's interesting about this is Peter says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? See, I'm not one to believe that Christians can be demons-possessed, I think when the Spirit of God lives in us, the Spirit of God lives in us, and demonic presences can't, in, in, can't inhabit our hearts. But we can be influenced by, by Satan, we can be oppressed by the demonic realm. But sometime during Ananias' journey, he opened a door. He opened a door and he allowed the enemy in and planted a seed in his heart. And that seed began to grow. And it grew into something that wasn't of God, it was of man. It became about him and not about the church. It became about selfishness and not about selflessness. But somehow in his world, he opened the door. And my challenge to you this morning is to evaluate your own selves. Evaluate who you are and what you do in your life. Evaluate the areas of your life and ask yourself the question, am I giving Satan a foothold anywhere in my life? Have I cracked open a door that he wants to walk through? Let's be mindful of the fact and reminded of the fact that the scriptures don't say that Satan is a little red dude with pointy ears and a pointy tail and a little pitchfork, right? I mean, if that's the way Satan walked around to tempt you, I mean, you'd run the other way, wouldn't you? When I was a kid and I saw images of the devil like that, it scared me. No, the Bible doesn't say that he runs around looking to scare you. The scripture says that he wanders around and he masquerades as an angel of light. What he shows you is beautiful. What he shows you is enticing. What he shows you speaks to your flesh, not to your spirit. What he doesn't show you is the consequence to choosing that versus others, other things, the godly things. Don't give Satan a foothold. The second thing I want to talk about briefly and how we can cultivate this unity as the church Is to respect and worship God We have to respect and worship God In verse 11, Luke writes that great fear Sees the whole church and all who heard about these events And he uses the word fear And fear isn't being used to talk about being frightened In the way that we would understand fear A paralysis where you are afraid The fear he's talking about is about reverence It's about being in awe. It's about recognizing the position that he is and changing your behavior and your life so that you can sit under that that authority. We had a worship service at the church a couple of months ago. Some of you were here. And I remember as I was walking around the back, and I didn't stay up front where the, where the worship team was. I was around the back, and I was walking near a picnic bench, and one of the kids in the church was sitting on the picnic bench, and they were—I don't even remember what they were doing. Like, I, I just was walking towards them as I was walking by, and I was just going to say hi. And as I was getting closer, they weren't paying attention until I got close enough that they saw me, and their body language changed visibly from whatever they were doing to— I was like, what what was that about? And I just said, hi, you know, good to see you. And I talked with one of their parents afterwards, and they said, oh, yeah, because, you know, you were walking and they were doing something they shouldn't have done. And I said, here comes Pastor Paul, look out. And I said, no, 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 don't do that, do that. You know, I wasn't coming by to slap their wrists. But can I tell you, as silly as that sounds, you know, a child looks an adult, and when the adult walks by, their behavior changes. And it's not because the individual may be abusive, it's because the individual has an authority or there's a reverence to that individual because of who they are, and the child recognizes that. Are you with me? You hear what I'm saying? If we have that same level of reverence for God, when God is in the room, when God is in my heart, we talk about the Holy Spirit yesterday. I was thinking, you know, scriptures, I think about this, how often. We think about private sins and things that, sins that we do that people don't necessarily know about. But scripture says you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can put out the Holy Spirit's fire. Can I tell you, you can't grieve an entity. You grieve a person. Because the Spirit of God's a person. And if we saw the presence of God through his Spirit more through the idea of a person that he walks with me. He speaks with me. He sits next to me when I'm struggling with temptation, when I wrestle with things, what I, want, what the enemy wants to introduce sinful things into my life. If I stop for a moment and say, God, you are awesome. I'm going to revere you. But Holy Spirit, you're not just living in my heart as some entity. You are a person and here you are right next to me. It will change what I do and what I don't do because the person of the Holy Spirit walks with me. And I will revere him because he is God. Let's worship God. Let's respect God. Because if we do those things, Jesus is going to do an amazing thing through our church. Because we'll pursue purity. He'll bring unity. And as we bring unity, there will come power. I'm going to invite you to stand with us. And I'm going to say a closing prayer this morning. But I want to ask you as you're preparing to stand and joining us in this song, I really want to ask each one of you to take a few moments and just do a personal inventory on in your heart today and ask yourself that very significant question. Is there anything in me, Lord, that you want me to lay before you? Is there any offense? Is there any sin? See, you know what I love about scripture is that God never used perfect people and he doesn't expect the church to be perfect. It's not our sin that disqualifies us from being part of God's fellowship and God's family. It's our response to our sin that can disqualify us. And God draws us with a heart of love and a heart of grace. And he says, if you walk in the way that I call you to walk, be prepared to experience things you never thought were possible. I will break down strongholds. I will unify where there was division. I will rebuild things that you think are broken. There are promises through the Old Testament and the New Testament alike that say, if you walk in my ways, I will take what is broken, destroyed, hopeless. I will make it hopeful. I will rebuild it. I will heal those things that have been damaging to you. That's the promise of God. And we just have to walk with open hands and open hearts. So if you would bow your heads as we pray, I'm just going to invite you, Holy Spirit, as we sing this song, that our hearts would be open this morning. As we sing, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. May we not prioritize anything above you. May we not consider anything an idol above you. May we make you our priority and may we lay down anything that gets in the way of that priority. God, have your way in our hearts. Transform us with a spirit of purity so that we can grow in unity and change the world. In Jesus' name we pray.